Welcome back to the program. Even if you're not a football fan, you've all seen the diagrams of plays with all those X's and O's. It makes you think, and even sometimes makes the players and coaches think, that they have it all figured out. If you just follow the diagram, you'll have success. That it will be a winning play. The problem is it's not true. There are dozens of factors that enter into the equation. The weather, the turf, memory, mental ability, the agility to pull it off, as well as the plans of the opposing team. In many ways, the same is true for the human brain and human behavior. You might have brain patterns, genetics, chemistry, that tells you clearly that someone will develop a certain way. The problem is, there's also environment, parents, and many other factors that make us who we are. That's the backdrop for our conversation with neuroscientist Dr. James Fallon. James Fallon is Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior and Emeritus Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology in the School of Medicine at UC Irvine. He has served as Chairman of the University Faculty and Chair and President of the School of Medicine Faculty. He's an award-winning neuroscientist and the Sloan Fulbright and National Institutes of Health Scholar at UC Irvine. His startup company, NeuroRepair, has engineered major breakthroughs in stem cell research, and it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. James Fallon here to talk about his book, The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. James Fallon, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me, and I've got to tell you the analogy you used. It's so perfect, I'm stealing it for my next talk. Well, you certainly may. (laughs) My pleasure. The thing that it tells us, and one of the things that is so powerful about your your own story in The Psychopath Inside, is the idea that when we think we have it all figured out, there are just so many other elements that come into play as we try and understand why people develop the way they do. Well, it really... It becomes an infinite mix of things. It's uh, it's it's daunting, but there are ways to get your arms around all these uh, complicated interactions. The way we've had to do it over the past eight years is with mathematically modeling, if you will, the uh, brain imaging, PET scans, fMRIs, with the genetics, with uh, the psychiatry, the psychiatric components of people, and in that mix, to we we look for how genes, to what extent certain genetic alleles affect or create those behaviors. And um, the numbers become very large. And, you know, I last year, I just for the heck of it, I tried to figure out the number of possible human beings there could be over 2 million years, right? And so I took the number of genes, the number of mutations we have, and all the different factors, genetic and epigenetic factors, and derived this number. It was 10 to the 80th power. And I said, but 10 to the 80th power. And it, I looked at it for a couple of days, and it reminded me. I said, I've seen that number. And it turns out to be the number of atoms in the universe, which means we really are stardust in the sense of the complexity and how many infinite varieties we are. Uh, nonetheless, we do have sort of some categories we can put people into, I guess. And uh, the question is where to draw that line. And when we look at some of these key factors, and you talk about three key ingredients, for example, in terms of genetics, in terms of brain function and the orbital cortex, as well as what happens to us when we're young, things like abuse, that in fact, even within those three key ingredients, the degree to which those things may or may not be true or evolved in a certain way has a profound impact as well. That's correct. You know, for each 
behavior, what we call complex adaptive behavior, smiling is one of them, but also aggression and violence and, and empathy. These are, it, it appears that each one of these behaviors is, is impacted by 10 to 15 genes. And so when we talk about a warrior gene for aggression, we're really talking about 15 warrior genes. Uh, uh, and, and so there are many combinations. And so at the moment of fertilization, there is something happens. It's like a casino where these dice are rolled. And the question is how are these all going to mix together? There's so many ways they can mix together to make you, you. And, and, and there's more and more of these uh, that are being found out in the past couple of years. And, and so there's a whole 90% of our, our, of our genetics is just being found out. And we're trying to sort this out and associate it with diseases and traits. But like you're saying, you know, if somebody inherits, of, let's say, 15 genes related to violence, they, they inherit eight high aggression ones, right, seven low aggression ones, well, they'll be slightly, probably slightly aggressive. Uh, some people will inherit no high aggressive genes. These are very passive people, low violence. You can't even get them mad. And some people can uh, inherit almost all of them, like I did. And so you're always ready to pop. You're very aggressive, uh, and uh, but it depends on other factors too. But so each one of these um, these factors or traits is impacted by the genes. But there's also a differential amount of brain changes that occur, like you intimated. There's a whole range of those. It's on a scale. It's what we mm -hmm. call dimensionality scales. And then how about the abuse, the amount of abuse and love that you've received? Well, you know, just spanking your kid is probably going to do nothing, right? When you talk about abuse, we're talking about really uh, pretty uh, violent and, and sort of repeating abuse that can be physical or emotional or sexual. Uh, now, the thing is that how about some kids that are abused and beaten up, bullied, some of them never show signs of psychopathy or really problem. They may be mad when they grow up, but they don't have it. So when we talk about the impact of environment, that the, the effect it has depends on the genetic makeup. So maybe only 20% of the people will really be greatly harmed, and, and you know, 40% won't really be affected, even though they might be angry and want to get even. And so as you put all of these factors together, and they're different, they're different scales, and different amounts, you can have a, a, a wide variety of normal behavior. Uh, but at the end of that, uh, you may have what would be getting into psychopathic or pre-psychopathic behavior. So everything is possible in the combination. And this, just the one point, this is how medicine, psychiatry is changing, is that we're trying to get away from categorical thinking. It's like, am I a psychopath or not? Am I obese or not? You know, we have a high blood pressure. Of course, it's all on a scale. So we're trying to... Uh, reform this uh, you know, way of looking at it, this categorical way. And of course, the categorical way is useful in, in, in courtrooms. Is he guilty or not? Did he do it or not? And all this. But for biology and medicine, it doesn't exist. Every, everything's on a scale, like you first said. There's also the idea of countervailing genes, that there may be abuse, there may be all of the impacts of that, for example, in childhood, but there may be a higher degree of resiliency in whatever genetic makeup leads to that that counters the abuse. Yeah, one, uh, that, that's correct, Jeff. One real aha moment, this is from two other labs, because uh, uh, I couldn't quite understand how to put it all together while I was writing the book, and these came out that there was a, an allele that was always thought to be a 
risk allele for high aggression and violence, and that would be in psychopaths and really aggressive people. And it's called the CERT gene, S-E-R-T. It means serotonin transporter. It's the, it's the protein that picks up serotonin in, in the synapses between the cells and then brings it back for reuse. Well, one of the alleles, if you have one of the alleles, you're at high risk for aggression. Now, the thing is, as it turns out, if you are brought up in an early environment, and they show this with monkeys and humans, in an early environment where there was abuse and violence, then the effect it would have on later life would be more abuse and violence. It's almost like it's reading, helping the frontal lobe read the environment that the child's going to be born into, right? And the, the child then will mirror that with either higher or lower aggression. Likewise, if you have it, that allele, that high-risk allele, and you're brought into a loving, nurturing, positive environment, it, it has a p- completely opposite effect. And so this is so there are some of these genes that offset the high risk risk as long as you have a kid uh, that's brought up in a loving environment with no you know no abuse no, no bad abuse you know, still you can scold kids and everything but uh, nonetheless that some of these genes now we know that there's hope you're not just your biology what we thought you were and it's uh, you can you can have a, a bad luck in the casino of you know rolling the dice genetically. But in that high risk becomes a high, uh, you know very high power, if you will, and a very positive, uh, a positive outcome as long as the kids treated well. Of course, the corollary of that is what we see in certain parts of the world, even certain parts of this country, where there's a kind of inbreeding of all the worst qualities, and we see this constant violence that becomes, in some ways, genetically self-perpetuating. Yeah, Jeff, that, that's a really terrific insight. The, if you look at places around the world where there's constant violence, and it could be in a neighborhood in one of our major cities, it could be the Gaza, it could be in Somalia, it could be in Africa, it could be anywhere where there's these hot spots where you have at least three generations of street violence and, and neighborhood and city violence. That what will, you know, the idea is what will happen is that, you know, if you're a 16, 18-year-old girl growing up in those streets, you're probably going to tend to hang out with and maybe ultimately mate with a tough guy. And once you start doing that, the, the, the tendency is to keep concentrating those genes. At, after several generations, the females start to have a higher rate of these aggression and violence-related genes. Then I think that's when the real trouble starts because with this higher rate of both males and females, uh, females having it, and then these behaviors are reinforced. Now you're starting to create a warrior culture. And for me, uh, when I realized that this is, a, you know, this is a reality that is really a, a warning signal, maybe the basis of all warrior societies, they end up destroying themselves because they they eat their own. You know, they 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 kill each other. It's like gangs killing each other. It's that whole thing. It's not just behavioral, but it maybe you genetically you know, enhanced after generations of that, that within a breeding of violent people. So uh, it's at that point, you say that this is some, we get, we need some hard biology to prove this and to show, you know, not only belligerent nations, belligerent groups or terrorists or terrorist groups or whatever gangs that what they end up doing is destroying themselves. Cause you know, frankly, those, those groups and people are not going to respond to saying, just be nice. <laughs> uh, but I, they may respond to, to the the, uh, the fact that there's a biological basis of what's going to happen, and you're all going to kill yourselves, and you want that, and and so you know you have to appeal to the people's I think selfishness uh, to maybe to affect any sort of idea of change. 
where does, and maybe this is a good place to get into your own personal story, how do things like intelligence and reason and logic and executive function, how do they play a role in impacting these negative kinds of sociopathic or psychopathic behavior? Well, Jeff, that can have a, both a positive effect, not only on the person, but on society, and a negative effect. Uh, if you look at intelligent psychopaths, and you look at their scans, they tend to have a lot of extra activity up in the upper part of their brain, their, their intellectual part, their executive function part. Well, what does that mean? That just means they become more expert at what they're doing, right? And that increased activity in this upper neocortical area that has to do with cognition, cold cognition, then what they do is become better planners. They become better manipulators. And in part of that is that usually their mirror neuron system, that part of the cortex on the side of the brain that can look at people and read people and understand and say, I know what that person's thinking. I can do that. I can mirror it. Uh, the problem with psychopaths is that they can really mirror behavior well and fake it. Uh, the thing is that that information is not then sent down to the emotional parts of the brain, areas like the insula and amygdala, that have to do with empathy. And so you get a psychopath can really read, have the sense of cognitive empathy. They know somebody else is in pain. They may actually feed off it, though, right? Uh, and they're very good at what they do. Whereas somebody with a lower IQ and lower abilities of this upper cognitive area, this cold cognition, uh, these are people that are going to get caught early. And they're going to, because they're going to bumble and fumble, and they're not going to be able to carry out uh, these acts for very long. So in a way, that protects society, because these are the unsuccessful psychopaths who get caught and end up in the prison system. And so uh, on the other side, if you have pro-social, kind of near psychopaths, not full-on psychopaths, but borderline pro-social uh, psychopaths, well, these people have the ability and the willingness. They have tremendous energy, and they have what's called social dominance. And if you look at social dominance, uh, all the biographers were, of the presidents were asked uh, to rate their psychopathy by looking at the traits of these presidents. And you know, at the top of the psychopathic scale for this social dominance was uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And number three was Franklin, FDR Roosevelt, who was willing to break rules for what he thought was right. And so people who are pro-social psychopaths, they have tremendous energy every day. They like being in charge, they like to dominate, and they, they have a knack. Many of them have a knack for the risks to take that pay off. That's why, you know, you find them, uh, some of them in the investment community, in the finance community, they know how to take chances. For somehow they can, they can read a situation and, you know, beat it by 5 or 10%. So do you want to hook yourself to that star? Well, you know, maybe, but you don't want it to be Bernie Madoff, right? You want it to be somebody uh, who, who who's... Not not a really a, a, a psychopath like that. But those are the proverbial masters of the universe. That's it. They they just, I mean, who wants to be a CEO for five years, for a week, or a president? Everybody, you know, many people think they would, but to do, you know, to be on 24-7 for years, it's, it's ridiculous. But psycho, there are psychopaths that have that energy because they love to dominate, manipulate, and it's it's a it's a whole, the bigger the job, the, 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 the more the candy involved for them. Talk a little bit about your own personal experience and what you discovered about your own genetic history and your own brain patterns and what it tells you about all of the things we've been talking about. Well, Jeff, you know, as a sidelight to 
just as a side thing to my research, I'm really a basic neuroscientist. I've worked a lot on adult stem cells and the chemistry of the brain. Uh, but I also, you know, for years taught uh, neuroanatomy, neuroscience to the medical students, graduate students, until I really knew the human brain really well. And so when we got a PET scanner back in the mid-90s at the university, my friends called me up because they were students years before, and they said, you know the brain what's different in these brains? And it turns out that these were murderers, serial killers, murderers, really uh, some bad news guys. And I did that uh, for years. And it wasn't until the mid-2000s that I got a whole group of them from different investigators. And I looked at them and I, and I said, my God, there's a pattern. And that pattern, and then I wrote a paper on it in 2005, and uh, that said it's the, the fundamental circuitry that's off in a psychopath is low orbital cortex in the frontal lobe right above the eyes and low activity in the amygdala and the areas connecting them. And uh, so they all had that pattern. So it, when I was finishing that study, at the end of the year, I started to give some talks. I gave one in Israel, I gave one in Italy, Norway, and locally in the United States just to test out the idea. And my, at a party, during just during that time at the end of that year, uh, my mother was at, she says, I hear you've been going around talking about, you know, this murders and everything. He said, you've got to read this book. Your cousin Dave sent it to me. It was a book that had come out on the history of our family, my father's side, mm -hmm. the Cornells. And in it was, it's called Kill Strangely, in it was the first killing of a mother by a son, the first matricide in the colonies in late 1660s. Uh, but what's worse is that there was a whole string of these Cornells that were, some were murderers and some were very poorly behaved. And it ended, in this, this pattern as we know it, uh, seemed to come to an end with Ezra Cornell, who's, you know, founded Cornell University, but also Lizzie Borden, her cousin. And so that was just a curiosity because, you know, the, the, the impact from your generations, from ancestors, after three or so generations, it's really diluted out. So it was more like a parlor game, an interesting family story, you know, about, you know, I've got horse thieves in my family. But it was unusual that there were so many. And the more we looked, we found other lines uh, on that side. So uh, my mother loved that one because, of course, it was about my father's family. And uh, even though she had written a truck up to Lucky Luciano's place with dynamite, but, so she, had, she was a very sweet, nice girl, but that was growing up at that time, you know, in the 30s. Now, uh, at the, so when I read that, and I got the genetic results back, because we had had scans done of my family. We were looking for the genes involved in Alzheimer's as part of a clinical study. Mm -hmm. And I asked my family, my wife, our kids, three kids, and my brothers and my mother to become involved in this. So I said, we'll see who's got genes for Alzheimer's, because my my wife's family, they had died. You know, many people died of Alzheimer's, and she went along with it. So we had that done and had the genetics done, and it was wonderful because when the results came back, and this was in the same year, within three months of this other stuff, uh, I got the results, and, and I, I looked at it, and it, it went through you know, nine or eight of the scans, and they were all normal. And I was, we were so relieved, and the genetics showed no propensity toward Alzheimer's. So it was a great relief for everybody, except I looked at the last scan, and it turned out to look like it was very psychopathic looking. And I told the technicians, this is the wrong pile, this belongs in the murderer's pile, you know, because it looked as, as bad as it could, and it turned out to be mine, and, and the genetics came back the same way, and that's when it all started. It all happened within a couple of months, uh, this, this whole thing, purely independent event, seemingly, and it pretty much changed our life. 
And when you discovered this about yourself, what did it make you go back and think about it? To what extent did it make you re-examine your own behavior over the years, and what did it begin to explain for you? Well, you know, Jeff, I, I always very confident. I knew who I was, right? And I'd gone through the teens and 20s and everything. I said, I know who I am. I got to 60 and found out I'm not who I, I thought I was at all. And that's, you're not supposed to do that. And, and you're not supposed to be a professor in this business uh, finding out who you are all of a sudden. So it, that it was kind of quirky, the whole thing. What it made me do, though, because I said I haven't killed anybody, I'm not a rapist, I haven't done anybody. I went and asked everybody I knew that was close to me, including my wife. Now, my wife said something that never stood out until a year later. When I showed her the scan and I said, it's just like these psychopaths, she goes, it doesn't surprise me. And I, I never clicked. I, you know, I just laughed. I thought it was a joke. And when I asked all these psychiatrists that I knew really well for, and who know me intimately, and on friends and family members, they all said, we've been telling you forever that you do these psychopathic things and you keep laughing at us. And I said, what? And when I put them all together, I collapsed in time. That moment where they all came together it turns out they all said the same thing, including my wife. And, I, and, and it was like, um, then it started to get a little bit more serious. But then they said, you just don't care about things. You don't care about people. You do things. You're a lot of fun. You're smart. You hang around smart people. So we'll, we'll kind of stick with you because it's, you know, you're kind of a gas to be around. And, uh, and when I heard this, and, I, and it should have been quite a shock with sitting with one psychiatrist, and I looked at him, I said, I just don't care. And it kind of proved them right, because I, I, I still don't care, but I know I should care at a deep level, empathetic level, what I do to people. And so I'm trying to now, in the challenge in the past year and a half, has been, can I change this? The new challenge is, can I, can I treat people well? What I thought I was doing before, I thought I was a great guy. And a lot of the things I was doing were, were not so great at all. Can you imagine how you might have reacted if you discovered this when you were younger, less confident, less sure of yourself, less clear about who you were? Well, you know, part of going back and in, in talking with people in high school and college and, and remembering back, it started the first thing, a neighbor's doctor, who was uh, the father of a very close friend of mine I hung around with, uh, he said, this is weird, must have been 14, he says, I don't want you hanging around with him. He just sensed something that was wrong with me. And when I went to uh, you know, in high school and college, there was always somebody who's either a psychologist or, you know, professor who said there's something evil about you. And I, of course, I just laughed at it. And so it scattered all along, but it wasn't until a little later people would say certain things to me that, you know, my, I, was, I took great risks with people's lives. I put them in danger, even though I was doing it myself. And uh, for me, it was just, you know, it was thrill-seeking and fun. And uh, to look back on it with a, you know, the irresponsibility lens, uh, there are too many things that I've done that luckily nothing really bad ever happened. But in the, in the end facing this, I ended up losing one close friend forever and another one won't, you know, hang around with me alone. But all my others, I mean, there must be 200 other people who they really haven't changed their behavior. They're just laughing at me now. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it has changed some of my relationships. Uh, but it did pop up early. And I did always have some strange, dark thoughts. And my mother first saw it when I was about, about that age, 11, 12, 13, in puberty. 
and she said something dark came over you. And I, I went from being a sweet, smiling, happy, loving kid, very sociable, to complete recluse who just obsessed about fixing a boat in the backyard, never talked to anybody. And she thought I was uh, really going into a deep depression. And, uh, and it, it, but it, she said you were very weird, and she never told anybody. She never told the psychiatrist we know or my father. And she, I think they just decided, she and her sisters and brothers, admit, to really treat me quite well. I don't know what they said, but she first admitted this just recently to me in the, uh, you know, in the past year uh, while I was writing. I said, Ma, you've got to come clean. And she started telling me things that were very instructive on how I had a very strange and dark streak about me then. But I think, you know, I was so busy. I was so lucky to be, you know, I was, I was almost six foot, 220, in great shape. I was an athlete and good looking and smart. And the gals liked me and everybody, you know, I was very popular. So I just got lucky because I think of the other parts of me that, that I had inherited, right? I mean, all these physical traits and everything. So I, people didn't bother me and people liked to be around me and I was a lot of fun and interesting and smart, like, you know, like some other friends, of course. But so I was never really challenged. People didn't try to bully me because it, I'm not the kind of person you wanted to bully. You know, I was in a wrestling team. And I was, a, you know, football and I was, and I could hit pretty well. So I was pretty much left alone. So I was never challenged and I never needed money. I never needed sex. I needed, never needed power. I always kind of just lucked into it, you know? And so uh, i feel if I'm a pro-social psychopath or near psychopath, I'm more a lucky one than anything. What does that tell you, though, about the dangers, the potential dangers of trying to use this information for shaping public policy? Well, we have to, first of all, it's very clear we have to know a lot of specific biology and, and genetics about somebody to say anything. First of all, if we want to do that. You know, for me, you know, just... I'm not really, uh, I don't really take this, I don't really take this in a, in a political way, but in thinking about it in all ways, in a public policy, I, I personally, I've been a libertarian, you know, since 1970. And, and for me, it's an anathema to break into people's privacy, their genetic code, their family and everything. So I'm in real struggle with the way I believe, you know, politically and how we treat each other because of being a libertarian. But I also know how dangerous uh, these people are, and they could be noticed early, not only noticed early, to tip off the family to say, look, treat this kid. Don't let any bullies neck near him. Don't let them get involved. They're really vulnerable. You know, it's like you have five kids and only one of them is going to be vulnerable to the bullying and to the abuse. Uh, who's really going to be vulnerable? I mean, that sort of information would be valuable, but of course that would be put under the microscope too. What about the fourth kid that wasn't quite there? So it becomes complicated. Like you, Jeff, you inferred this right from the very beginning on the whole spectrum of these things. And what's the cutoff? When don't you pull, you know, the parents sit down with a genetics counselor and say, you know, how do we handle this? But it may have to be done because there's the, the people who are, who are made psychopathic because of this early abuse on top of their biology, they're, if they're smart, they can do damage for decades, decades, really serious damage of all sorts. And so I don't know how much we can tolerate them just being loose all the time. Uh, so I'm struggling with that right now. Dr. James Fallon, the book is The Psychopath Inside, a neuroscientist's personal journey into the dark side of the brain. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. 
And Jeff, those were fantastic questions. You, you really know this stuff. It's great. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 